I don't think that one is better or worse than the other. I don't think allowing everybody to do what they want is better than leading differently. But I think it all takes a certain amount of patience to get to what works for you and the people that work with you. I don't think there is one right way. As the leader, this is something I see all of the time. As the leader, I should be dictating to everybody else what they should be doing from the day to day, right? As opposed to teaching people to think for themselves. There's one way to do it, and this is how you should do it. And if you don't do that, then you're doing it wrong. Hey, welcome to the Digital Dudes Podcast. I'm David. I'm Reed. And we're here with... I'm Nicole. All right. That's the Digital Team. Uh, and then we're also here with Cindy. Cindy, why don't you introduce her, uh, yourself and give us a little bit of your background? Sure. So I am Cindy Spiegel. I'm a speaker. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of two books. I've written a book called Micro Joys, Finding Hope, Especially When Life is Not Okay. My first book is called A Year of Positive Thinking. I've been in this field for about 11 years after pivoting at the age of 35 from a full career in the New York fashion industry. Uh, so what I do now is I go around to companies and brands and events, and I have these incredible conversations around leadership. Uh, and for the first time, I would say, and all of my life, I am exactly where I should be, meaning this is the work that I was put on this planet to do. So I am very excited to be here with you all today to talk about it. Maybe unpack that a minute. When you say it's yeah. the first time in your life and right now this is what you're put on to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Say more. Yeah. So, so I had a whole other career before in the New York fashion industry and we'll talk, we'll definitely talk about it at the summit and we may get into it later, but you know, I had a career for 15 years where I didn't feel like I was able to be my full self. And today the work that I do in the world is because of who I am right? Like I wouldn't be able to write books every few years or have the conversations that I have if I weren't able to show up as my full self. So somehow I inadvertently, and I say inadvertently because I didn't know it was possible, uh, I built a career for myself that is based solely on who I am. So I never have to pretend to be anyone else when I walk into work every day. And work for me means my office or somebody else's space. Mm. Can I, which is kind of oh, cool. Yeah, go ahead. Nicole. I was going to jump in. It sounds like Reed was too. Um, but was there a catalyst for you, you know, in your career where you thought, okay, I am not being my true authentic self. I have to make a change or did it kind of happen throughout some discovery that, that you did at the time? Yeah, that's a great question because I don't think I had that language when I left the fashion industry. For me, it was more of a gut instinct. You know, I knew that I would continue to get jobs in the fashion industry if I, I was very good at what I did, which is product development. Um, I just knew that I needed to leave. And the only way that I would figure it out is if I left. And so it was spring 2013 Fashion Week. And I remember being done. It was at the Tents, which is part of New York Fashion Week in New York. We were in the Tents and I thought this was a magnificent show. I'm done. And a week later, I went in and I spoke to the designer and I said, I've done all I can do here, but I'm, I'm finished. And I gave my notice and I never looked back. And so I think for me, part of the inquiry was simply leaving where I was. I had to get out of that situation, that comfortable place of doing what I knew how to do in order to figure out what was next. So I didn't know what was next. I certainly didn't plan for, for what I'm doing today, um, but I knew that I had to leave that place of comfort to get there. It's amazing. Super powerful. Yeah. Well, two questions there. Do you, when you do coach folks, maybe you don't coach on this, this uh, scenario, 
of are they really happy and and what could be next um instead it seems like you mostly focus on leadership but if i'm wrong there let me know because i'd be curious how you would coach them given that for you it was more instinct because i yeah. think more and more and i think it's great people are uh, embracing you know their mental health uh whether it's through call it traditional therapy or career coaching you mm-hmm. know trying to better understand themselves have somebody you know that can hold their hand along the way at least for a little while um, to try and help them get to a place that is is more their genuine self that they can really mm-hmm. find joy. So I'm curious how you you know would would talk to somebody uh, that you might be mentoring about you know really identifying that. And then the second question is um, how did you eventually get to this place that is 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 so perfect for you? Since you said yeah. you didn't know instantly that this this is where you were going to land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the first question uh, about sort of mentoring other folks who are in this place or this crossword, crossroads, again, like most of what I do is uh, personal leadership. And the reason that's so important to me, the personal leadership piece is because when you know who you are, it's much easier to make these decisions along the way, right? When you know that you are always working from a place of of integrity, from a place of being honest with yourself, you also recognize when something doesn't feel right. Right. And, you know, I talked about that gut instinct that I had. For me, it was most important at that time to follow it, even if I didn't know where it was going to take me. So there was a real internal trust. And part of personal leadership to me is building that relationship with yourself that I think so many of us don't have. Um, and so when we are uncomfortable in situations, whether it be pivoting careers or moving, you know, to a different location, whatever it is, we we really get stuck. And we can't get ourselves out of it because we don't have the tools. And sometimes those tools are just inquiry, you know, like, why doesn't this feel right to me? Could you you define uh, personal leadership and then maybe give an example? Yeah. So personal leadership to me is really how you self-manage and how you self-manage to show up in the world. Right. So for me, the foundation of personal leadership is your integrity right, is what matters most to you. Are you clear on what your core values are? How do they drive the work that you do in the world? How do they drive how you show up in the world? How do they impact the way you treat other people? So much of the work I do is around the values that are important because, you know, this work isn't a binary. What is important to you may not be as important to me. So it's really working from a place of strength. Um, and, And when you can get super clear on that, to me, you can go just about anywhere. You can do just about anything. And do you think it's possible or for your experience, when you said you didn't know what was next, had you done the work to identify your own core values and whatnot before you left? Or is it something, yeah, I'm just, I'm just more asking, like most people can't afford to go on a walkabout, you know, for like six months. Yeah, me either. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear. (laughs) Thank you for asking that. Um, Yeah, I couldn't afford a walkabout either. I was living in Brooklyn at the time. You know, my apartment was $3,000 a month. It was a great loft space, which now I think sounds like a steal in Brooklyn, but (laughs) that's not the point. Um, No, I couldn't afford it either. And I had no backup plan. What I did have was a 401k. And to to be clear, (laughs) to be clear, I am not suggesting that other people make that same decision. What did I do the work before? Yes-ish. Um, I had at that point, and I didn't mention this, but I have done many, many yoga teacher training certifications and meditation certifications. So I had started self-inquiry probably around 27 or 28 years old. Um, 
so I'd started to kind of ask myself those questions. By the time that I left my my career, really, not realizing I was leaving my career fully, um, I had done some inquiry, but not enough where it became very clear what I was going into. So what I needed to do, there were a few agreements I had to make with myself. One, what are you willing to give up? And what are you not willing to give up? Right. And I remember at the time saying the one thing I will not give up is my apartment. This is my foundation. I worked really hard to get a beautiful loft space in Brooklyn. This I'm not going to give up, which means that there were so many other things that I had to give up. Right. Like I wasn't going to the gym. I couldn't be a part of the yoga studio that I had really built relationships uh, in. There were many things I couldn't have. That meant I couldn't go out to eat all the time. I was going to sit at home and you were going to come to my really nice apartment. The other agreement that I made with myself was very tactical. Right. And I said, this is how much money you have in the bank because I did save some money. Um, and I said, this is how much money you have in your 401k. You can use up to X amount of money. I spoke to my accountant at the time and said, how much can I take out before this gets really bad? And he was like, obviously the advice is none. Um, but, I, but I knew, I knew that if I took out a little bit here and there, you know, I would be okay. Um, but I think the most important part for me was I knew that I would be okay. I had done enough inquiry and enough work to say, Cindy, if you figured this out, you can figure that out. And by this, I mean, I grew up in poverty in New Jersey. You know, this was not something that I knew. I grew up on welfare. And I talk a lot about this in my work because it was a big source of shame when I worked in the fashion industry. So for me, to, to sort of have a six-figure job by the time I was 28 and fly across the world, which was all part of the work that I was doing... I felt like I had done enough to be able to achieve that. And if I did that, I can figure out the rest. Hmm. Did that make sense? It, it does make sense. And um, no walkabouts. <laughs> yeah. And I think many people feel um, I heard this, this uh, recently. I'm not going to get this quote exactly right, but basically it was that most, you know, most people stand still or stay where they are because it's not bad enough. Meaning like if mm. their situation was worse, they would be yeah. like, oh, yeah, I got to get the heck out of here. But because it's just like sort of bad, they just don't do anything. So they'd almost mm -hmm. be in a better situation if they were in a worse situation because it would mm -hmm. cause them to take action and do something. About they hit it. that tipping point. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I do think there's a lot of people and hopefully not too many at Digital, but there's, we, we know there's some examples of this that folks may not feel like it's their dream role or their dream work, but they love yeah. the company. And mm -hmm. so they are, you know, call it 60 percent you know, fulfilled. It's mm -hmm. like, there's a lot here that I do appreciate. I love the network and there's parts of the work that are really fulfilling, but, um, you know, is it, am I at a point where I'm willing to take that risk that, that you took, um, yeah. to try and find, you know, Nirvana, if you will, like, mm -hmm. uh, because there's no guarantees, but I think what you're saying is, is, you know, um, try and build up and through that self-inquiry enough trust, you know, that you will land and mm -hmm. it's better, you know, and more often than not to take, take those risks than to always wonder. Cause I do think that mm -hmm. over time that compounds, right. It starts to fester. Right. Even if you feel mm -hmm. like you're mostly happy, uh, if there's kind of these hollow points, um, mm -hmm. then, uh, it, it eventually will, will come back, you know, come back mm -hmm. to you in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. And it will impact everything that you do, not just the work you do in the world. It will it will impact the relationships you have, the relationships with yourself and others. If this is not something this sort of um, 
discomfort or uncertainty isn't something that we can sit in and not have it affect everything in our lives. You know, I just want to speak to what you said about trusting that you will land. The other part of this work that I think is really important is being honest with ourselves. I can't promise you that you will land. Mm -hmm. Only you know that, right? Do you have the skills, the grit, whatever it takes to land if you walk away from everything you know to be true? Because I don't think that everybody does. And I don't think that that's a bad thing. There's no judgment in it. But I think we do have to be honest with ourselves when we decide to make these sorts of pivots. For me, it was never about... um, this job is mostly okay, or it's mostly good. It was a good job. It was a good career. I loved what I did. Um, I simply felt like I was done with it. And so sometimes I think these pivots can happen not because something is inherently wrong. You know, we, we, are taught to to climb this ladder. And the ladder means this is my job today. And that's the job I want tomorrow and so forth. But I think very few times are we taught that we can just get off the ladder altogether, get on a different ladder if we want to, or get in a boat. And so the idea was never that I wasn't happy with what I was doing. I just no longer felt like it fit who I was at that time in my life. You know, and and for many of us, that may be the case. It's not about being in a bad situation, but it makes sense to me that for a lot of us, we want to wait until it gets really, really bad before we implode. I mean, we do that in many ways. I think we do that in relationships. We stay in relationships too long. You know, we stay in jobs too long. We wear the same color lipstick that doesn't work for us for too long, like all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, that's my biggest issue. I didn't want to say, but I figured it might be. Yeah, this is a light rose color. You can't really pick it up on the camera so um i didn't give you a chance i don't think we heard the second part of that which was how you uh then ultimately decided on this this leadership mentoring and 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 you know the talks and stuff and uh if i can squeeze one more in it's still related the same question but did you start more with one-on-one like mentoring mm-hmm. and coaching career coaching because uh, it seems harder, right, to just suddenly like be doing keynote speaking and like, you know, drawing drawing audiences. So I'm just curious if you don't mind sharing a little bit more with that transition once you made the decision to finding this sweet spot and, and how it all kind of staged out. Yeah. So the first thing I'd say is I haven't found anything yet. I think it's all evolving always. Uh, when I first left the fashion industry, and again, I think this is just part of that work you do with yourselves. Like I, I've always been quite optimistic. I knew that I would land, um, but I was kind of floundering for a little while. I was holding these six person yoga classes in my apartment. Again, it was like I used what I had to do what I had to do at the time, which sounds much more sinister than it is. It was just yoga people. Um <laughs> You know, I did that and I got a call from one of my graduate school professors and he said, Cindy, I really think you should consider teaching. So I went to my alma mater in New York City and I started teaching. And then uh, I was getting these evaluations like other faculty evaluate you. And one of the faculty that evaluated me said, you know, I've not seen many people who can teach the way you do. I think you should come to Parsons and teach. So I said, okay, sure. Like basically at that point in my life, I just said yes to most things. Like if it, if I didn't have anything to do, I didn't have any money coming in. I was like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. Um, and I know that that sounds quite privileged to say, look, I was teaching at one great school and then somebody else came in and invited me to, but, but it kind of is what happened. But I think the, the deeper lesson is that I just kept saying yes to things. Um, and then Somebody, I think it was one of my students at Parsons at the time, says, I want to start a fashion company. 
you know, I want to start this brand. Do you, do you know what I can do? So I had this conversation and then that person asked me to talk to somebody else that they knew. So when I, when I left the fashion industry, I started coaching and mentoring folks who wanted to start fashion businesses because I had spent a 15, 16 year career on the business side of fashion. So that I can do. So I really, it was these sort of small steps along the way that landed me with in where I was. So I went from that to doing, you know, sort of group mentoring for, for women. I think it was women specifically at the time who wanted to start fashion businesses. So it was really quite niche then. Uh, and then I eventually started to realize it didn't matter what kind of business it was. It was the same principles. Um, and it expanded from there. And the first time that I started speaking publicly was about, I think it was about starting a fashion business that was at this very small event in Utah or Ohio. Uh, and I had never been on a stage before. And the second I got, now when I say stage, it was like a small conference room. It was hardly, <laughs> hardly a stage, but there were people in front of me and I never felt more myself. And the weirdest thing happened that there was a line of people waiting to talk. Now, I didn't think anything I said was that interesting. I was talking about starting, I think, a fashion business or starting a business. I think it was like starting a business at 35 or something. Um, and then I got an invitation to speak at another event and another event, and it just kept snowballing. And so this personal leadership, I think, was really just inherently what I was doing, but didn't necessarily have a name for since I was in my my late 20s. Um, and it just became sort of my own brand of talking about these things and and getting invited to larger and larger events. And for the most part, it's what I do full time now. And it's fantastic. But it was not the plan. I didn't. I'm not even sure outside of Tony Robbins, I knew this was a job. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you uh, I have. Then more questions, but yeah, no, I was kind of going to build off of what you said earlier on just like what we're seeing with our staff and our company, but then with our experience over the years and with, you know, how the world is changing, you know, we've seen mm. it go from work as work to work and life integration. And that has put yeah. more pressures, you know, on us as employers to kind of be mm -hmm. all things, to all people. So we want to be your mm -hmm. great employer. We want to be your great purpose. Um, and so we try to be all facets. Um, I, and mm -hmm. I think that is very challenging. And so my question to you is like, how are you seeing that with the work that you're doing with the leadership mm -hmm. goals that you see folks come in and have? Um, and how are you thinking about that evolution? Yeah, that's such a great question. Because the first thing I would say is that you can't be everything to everyone. I say, totally. and I say this all the time, I'm like, you are not for everyone, you being a brand, a business, an event, or an individual, right? We can't be everything to everyone. But with work and personal integrating, it feels that way. And I think the only thing we can do as employers is to allow our teams to have agency, right? Allow them, really sort of give them the tools to understand who they are so that they are making decisions for themselves. Because you can't do that for them, right? As, a, as an employee, your, your job stops at some point along the way. And this idea that there's blurred lines is like, yes, and you know, folks have to have individual agency to decide what they want to do. It's not really up to the employer to have to figure that out. And I think that that's something we're seeing more and more, which is why, you know, these these skills, these individual skills become so important from an employer perspective. 
not just to the individuals themselves, because you want to be able to, to offer that to, to your team, to your people, so that they know how to self-manage as well. They know when to say they have to go. They know how to make the best decisions for work and, and themselves. But that's, that's not an easy thing. Yeah. And as we offer that, I think it's forcing the three of us to also be along that journey, right? Like we're yes. doing our own self-development work and growth. And um, if we're going to have these conversations, we have to, you know, show up for them. Um, so right. it's been a good journey for us to be on. But I think for me personally, I did not expect that, you know, when we first started the business mm. six and a half yeah. years ago. Yeah. And do you think that, because this is something that I've seen quite a lot that I think is quite impactful, is when leadership can mirror certain behaviors for their team. Right. So, for example, I want you to have work life balance. Then you can't be there till 10 o'clock at night. Absolutely. Yep. You know, and, and how have you seen that? I'm not, I'm not the interviewer here, but how have you seen that sort of become really helpful for your team? I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is boundaries. Um, so yes. both with, mm -hmm. as you're mentioning, you know, work-life balance, but then also boundaries for our clients, you know, just yes. speaking openly of like where we begin and end, what can we do, where do we provide the most value? Um, because, true. you know, as the business has evolved, I think early on, we wanted to just go and be up above and beyond 24-7. And now- Yes. And now I'm really spending time thinking through um, where are we providing the most value and how can we double down yeah. on that? Mm, mm. And then your team sees that, right? And I think something you said that was just so important is boundaries. You having those boundaries, right? Your team then can, can you're really showing them what that looks like and saying, it's okay that we can't be everything and we can't do everything. Yes. Because that's then said, the expectation isn't that they will be everything either. Yeah. I, that said, um, it's definitely David and I and probably Nicole to a degree, but I think you're aware, Cindy, we moved to a four day work week. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something we did a couple of years ago. It was, uh, as you can imagine, a huge move. A lot of people mm -hmm. saw it as risky, uh, some inside and out and more outside the organization. Mm -hmm. But uh, we ensured them, A, it was not a test, that we weren't going back. <laughs> so that was pretty important for them to hear. Mm -hmm. um, and B, that, you know, we felt we would actually come out stronger you know, because uh, the idea was is more that work-life balance or integration as, as some are calling it and that, yeah. you know, people would be more energized, happier, you know, more recharged, et cetera, and that we could actually be more efficient as a result. And fortunately, mm -hmm. all of that played out was great. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I would own the fact that I did not take four-day work weeks for the first year, mm -hmm. <laughs> sure. maybe even the first year and a half. So I wasn't mirroring, um, you know, I guess the the uh, behavior that that I was I was looking for, but I didn't see it as much as behavior. And where I'm going with this, back to your like, it's a personal discovery, self inquiry. Mm -hmm. I love to work, and mm -hmm. so I really came at it somewhat selfishly, a little bit, where I'm like, I mm -hmm. have three kids, and you know, raising a family, and I want to walk my girls to the bus every day, and just spend more time yes. and be there for them on Friday. But I also know myself; I do enjoy working. There's a lot of things that I, you know. Healthy or not, that sounds terrible. I hope it's healthy. My point is, is that uh, I would love for us to have an environment that um, we're mirroring more often than not, but that mm -hmm. when somebody sees me online on a Friday, that mm -hmm. they're not now feeling this pressure. It's like, well, yes. there's the CEO. Look at, he's he's back online on Friday. That means that really we should be working on Friday. So that to me is our ultimate goal is that there mm -hmm. are different people here that have different interests and not all of them mm -hmm. are like skiing. You know, sometimes it could be work and that's okay. Mm -hmm. 
the personal tricky. agency, right? <laughs> it is it is tricky. But what I want to what I want to just clarify though is what you just said. You know, we we created this four day work week for for digital, but that doesn't mean that I worked four days a week. Personal agency is saying you don't have to. Right. That doesn't mean that's that's not the only way that we mirror, right? Mirroring the behaviors that we want to see sometimes says it is up to me to decide how much I want to work. As the leader in this organization, I don't need you to work five hours. I mean, five. You do need them to work five hours. <laughs> you don't need them to work five days a week. But if you choose to, that's okay. So what you're what you're teaching is choice. Right. You're saying this is this is what exactly. we're suggesting. If, if you want to work more, you're welcome to. But please understand. And this is where you just have to reiterate it. This is not the expectation. This is not necessary for the job you have. With that said, if there's something that you want to do and you want to come in on that fifth day, you're welcome to. That's per personal agency. Yeah, I think it's a great way to clarify that. I, there, I think it's harder um, and it's understandable that uh, I'll call it our more seasoned um, employees had yeah. a harder time probably with that um, because yeah. that's not what they had seen, you know, where they had worked before. And so it was, I think, um, yeah, just a more difficult transition in many ways. So used to working five days a week, or if you see, you know, me or David working that you feel like, you know, well, that's actually what they mean. Whereas yeah. some of the, the next generation, if you will, uh, coming in, didn't have precedent, weren't, uh, air quotes, institutionalized. And so they, sure. they were maybe a little bit quicker or more comfortable um, transitioning to a four-day work week and not mm -hmm. uh, being too focused on maybe what their manager or senior, senior leadership was doing. Um, I uh, want to somewhat pivot here, but um, you mentioned the tooling that's big for us at Digible. It's been a huge part of us building the company, our success. We we just call frameworks, you know, it's like, mm. um, and so much of it has been oriented around scale, but there's a lot of frameworks now that Nicole has helped lead as far as our employee experience. So I'm curious, um, the tooling you're speaking of with like self-inquiry, um, how much of that, I guess you built kind of from the ground up versus, mm -hmm. uh, you know, stitching together best practices, things you've read or experienced, et cetera. And then mm -hmm. if you could, you know, talk a little bit more uh, about the tooling itself. Yeah. So I'm going to give you an answer uh, you probably aren't going to like, and I'm just warning you because I'm going to say it anyway. I don't know how much any of us really makes up. Meaning so many, so much of the inquiry that I do is based on a lot of philosophy, a lot of reading, a lot of seeing what other folks are doing and what works. Um, so, you know, a big part of the self inquiry that I talked about for me, and this isn't something that works for everybody, is that I sit every day and meditate for 20 minutes. I'm not a pusher of meditation, but that's a tool that works for me. You know, uh, the four hour work week. I didn't create that. You didn't create that. But more more weeks than not, I work four hours a week. Why do I keep saying hours? Four day. <laughs> I'm starting to feel like I work a lot less than I think. Yeah, our employees are really uh, going to like you. We're moving we from really four days are. a week to You're four hours. <laughs> if we could, if we could, I do like to manifest. No, but I think I think that there are many of the tools that I use are because I've learned them from someone else. And I don't think that that makes them less valid or less important. I don't need to create everything. It's been out there. My job is to study. My job is to read. My job is to, when I say my job, I mean what I do in the world, really comes from being around folks that are doing really valuable, important work and staying in connection with people and community and learning. And I think that if more of us understood that we didn't have to create it, we might be doing more in the world. 
Yeah. You know? Makes so the answer is how much of this framework is my own? Most of it's not, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think what is my own is my own personal integrity right? That's something that's my own. And that's what I build through a lot of self-study, but it's not, it's not through a framework that I've created. Yeah. Well, I totally appreciate the candor and I think we're similar. <laughs> There's, there are some things you can imagine that, well, I'll say we made up, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but uh, it's the whole thing that nobody has an original thought, right? You know, it's yeah. all coming from somewhere. So I, I totally grant that. And, you know, we try to do a good job, the three of us of, basically similar to what you're saying, reading, researching, like drawing from as many, you know, data points, if you will, examples, um, and, and then testing, you know, because you don't know whether it's the, the right tool, the right framework, like you said, meditation mm -hmm. for some is not for, for the next person. Totally. And so it's mm -hmm. a little harder to do company wide because at some point you start to get committed to those frameworks, but we still try yes. to offer, I think, you know, a fair amount of flexibility in how we operate. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I think when it comes to reading and self-study and educating, so much of that is on us as the individuals to learn that, right? And to, to be in touch with what matters to us. And the more we can teach that to other people and mirror that for other people, the better off we all are, you know, but we don't have to, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are lots of good tools and techniques and frameworks that already exist in the world. And I think this partially comes from having a, a prior career in product development, I'm not afraid to try things and see if they don't work. Like if they work, great. If they don't work, I'll let them go. You know, but I think for so many of us, when it comes to trying different frames of, you know, frameworks or thoughts uh, or ideas, we really think we have to stick to it forever and sort of force our way through. And again, as a product developer by by trade, I don't feel that that's the case. I'm like, I can try some things out and see what works for me. Is this going to help me with my habits? Is this going to help me be more productive? Because it helps a million other people doesn't mean it's going to work for me or for you, you know? And so I think that's the, the agency again. Let's try, let's adapt, but not hold ourselves to it if it doesn't work for us, like meditation, for example. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing and uh, a through like a, a thread throughout uh, the conversation is uh, it it's what everyone always says where it feels almost cliche, but where it's a journey. Mm -hmm. I think I've gotten really hung up on the past and like right and wrong. Was I wrong here? Mm -hmm. Was I right here? Versus, hey, it's your it's continual forward momentum. And to your point, mm -hmm. if you think of yourself as a product, that is a very different experience because a I'll just say a tech product is never complete. It's always right. getting tweaked and will forever. And so you have to be okay with that, that it's a, a journey, right? Mm -hmm. And you as an individual are a journey. Mm -hmm. And if we, we are nothing but tech products, are we? <laughs> uh, but it is a journey. It really is a journey, right? Like that. that is what life is. And something I talk about a lot, you know, you mentioned good, I think it was good or bad. What, what was the yeah. binary you just Yeah, right mentioned? or wrong, right good or, wrong. or bad. Thank I'll take you. either, but I was very true, false, binary in the yes. way I was perceiving myself. That's what I was just going to mention is this binary, you know, in, in my most recent book, Micro Joys, which may not come up much here, you know, I talk about grief and loss or uh, joy and, and grief and how we can experience those at the same time. And I think this idea of not needing to be binary exists across the ways in which we lead, right? Like most things are not good or bad or right or wrong if we allow ourselves to be in that gray space. And most of us don't want to do that because black or white is an answer and we like answers. We want to find an answer in a book. We want to listen to a podcast that tells us how to live in the world. And 
to be outside of that binary certainly feels a lot more difficult because there is no one right way to be. But that is agency. That is personal agency and saying, hey, you know what? Maybe neither of these things are the right choice for me. Maybe this isn't right or wrong. Maybe there's a lot of gray and I get to decide where I am on that spectrum. And is that, I'm just going to jump in real quick on that because that is definitely something I feel just passionate about. Like, is that a skill that you had to practice or a muscle that you had to flex? I think back when I was in an intense period of grief, having yeah. a little moment of joy, it would be like, oh no, no, you can't, you can't be happy right now because you're sad. Um, and so I had to like almost recondition my brain to be like, oh no, you can actually feel this micro joy to use your, your expression. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's okay. Um, but it took me a while, I think for that, for myself to accept that. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. I think, I don't know that I was always that way, but I will say growing up as a biracial black Jew, uh, I've always lived a non-binary way. Like I didn't really fit in anywhere. Right. So I think a little bit was inherent in me to, to not, to not fully need a, an explanation for something to feel okay. Um, when it came to joy and grief, I think that that the ability to be uncomfortable or to not understand was not foreign to me. To be okay not fully understanding was not foreign to me. And I think that much of that really is from having, you know, the past, spending the last 20 years in inquiry to say, you know what, I've seen so many different ways of getting to the same place that I know there's multiple ways of being. But I think that for a lot of us, we have to practice that. Like in what ways is this not right or wrong, particularly in a divisive world, the one that we live right. in today, you know, where we're cutting people out because we don't like who they voted for. We're cutting people out because we don't like the color of their shoe. I mean, I hope you're not cutting people out because of the color of their shoes, but it feels like you might in this day and age. Um, so something that I always suggest to folks who find this concept difficult is to put yourself in situations where you are um, less familiar often. So have conversations with strangers. If you never talk to strangers, you know, do things that feel a little bit uncomfortable because the more we allow ourselves to sit in discomfort, the more likely we are to really understand the depth of this non-binary world we live in. I didn't mean to get that deep. I feel like that just went real deep for no reason, but you know, I, I do think I do think that that we need to surround ourselves with folks that are different than we are in many different ways, whatever that means to you. We have to listen to conversations for, uh, that are not our own, that aren't in our own silo. Um, and the more we do this, the more we learn the skill of holding multiple things at once. And when we learn that, we know that there isn't just one right way to do something. Amazing. Thank you for that answer. Can you, Cindy, maybe if we sort of change directions a little bit, I'm curious um, about um, what, based on your opinion or what you've seen, what are, uh, what do many people get wrong about leadership? Uh, what are some misconceptions about leadership? That there's one right way to do it. And that top-down leadership is all there is all the time, even today, you know, that there is one right way to do it. And as the leader, this is something I see all of the time, as the leader, I should be dictating to everybody else what they should be doing from the day to day, right? As opposed to teaching people to think for themselves, there's one way to do it and this is how you should do it. And if you don't do that, then you're doing it wrong. 
So it kind of goes back to this binary, you know, when it comes to leadership. So I think even as leaders, understanding that the people who work with and around you have something to offer, it allows us to be able to situationally lead better, but that's not always the case. So I think if we, if we could really engage people in the act of leadership, we'd all be better off for it. And what do you think is the root cause of that? Uh, meaning uh, the, the top down are feeling like you have to dictate. Because uh, one of the things uh, we, I don't know if it's it's struggle with, um, but sometimes we're actually on the opposite side and maybe that mm. better to be on that side, but where we're, we're offering too much autonomy. And mm -hmm. as employers, you get nervous about that because it's yes. like, you know, what if uh, they make too many mistakes? And then yes. I know who ultimately owns this. That's me. And Correct. so uh, <laughs> maybe that's just a good springboard for you. But um, at its core, yeah, what do, you, what do you think is really the root cause of, of that issue with leadership? I think particularly of a certain generation, it's just what we know to be true, right? It's It's how we've grown up, but I think also it allows us to feel in control. We, listen, we don't have control of most things, but I think it allows us to feel like we do. And so I understand inherently why people may lead from that place. Um, and to speak specifically to the opposite end of it, you know, I think anywhere where we have two extreme um, realities, whether it's not leading at all or leading too much, we have to find a middle. Any trends and in, in any business that I've ever experienced, we're going to find one of two and then we're going to eventually swing to the middle. But it takes a little while to get there. So sometimes that means starting with being a little dictatorial or sometimes it means letting everybody do what they want and realizing that doesn't work either to find that middle ground. So I think there is a little bit of grace that's needed too. Right. I don't think that one is better or worse than the other. I don't think allowing everybody to do what they want is better than leading differently. Um, but I think it all takes a certain amount of patience to get to what works for you and the people that work with you. I don't think there is one right way. Yeah. Makes but you do have to lead. Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing that I uh, would love to get your thoughts on. I said one thing. I've already asked you like 12 questions, but is um, how's how do you coach leaders about feedback, I guess, and, yeah. and getting feedback, being active, you know, you mentioned actively listening, but mm -hmm. it, it occurred to me, like a lot of times when, when I'm coaching my direct reports or having one-on-ones, it, it still mm -hmm. feels like I'm mostly giving the feedback versus getting mm -hmm. it. So I'm mm -hmm. trying to be more intentional myself, like at the end of one-on-ones or in performance reviews, Hey, you know, how am I doing? And there's certain things mm -hmm. we have in place that are ensuring that, but I just think it's so critical. Uh, again, back to like what we know, it, I think a lot of times is one way feedback, um, mm -hmm. you know, meaning you're giving it as a leader, not necessarily, you know, um, getting it. So yeah, yeah. thoughts there. Yeah. yeah. So when you say you're giving feedback, are you in these, what's, what's the purpose of the meeting? I guess I would ask because most people don't go into a meeting saying today, I'm going to tell my boss about themselves. <laughs> you know, that's, it's just not a natural way to be. Um, so are you wanting them to give you feedback about your leadership or what are you, what's your, yeah, goal? yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I try to be as self-aware as I can. Um, mm -hmm. and maybe my position's a little bit more unique than, than some of the, some of our other leaders, but I don't want to act like mm -hmm. it's overly unique. Um, just as far as the comfort that somebody might have providing mm -hmm. feedback to the three of us, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, given that we're the founders and employers of the company, but I don't want to mm -hmm. get sidetracked here. I just, when I'm, sometimes I, I actually want to get feedback on the feedback I'm giving. <laughs> 
So mm-hmm. meaning I'm in a one-on-one and it's like, hey, I noticed yeah. that you did great in that meeting the other day. I really love this strategy, but in this area, I noticed that, you know, it's been difficult for you to like get this over the finish line, blah, 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 whatever. Um, yeah. And I, I'm hungry enough just to say, hey, how did how did that land? You know, did yes. that delivery? But then I also am interested just you know, timely specific feedback. It's like, Hey, I just round, a, uh, just led a roundup this morning. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, was there parts of it that just didn't make sense to you that I wasn't clear or whatever. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to overdo that. I just want to balance it better because I feel yeah. like more often than not meetings that I have, I'm the one providing the feedback and that makes it You're- hard for me to grow. If, if I'm always the, the one giving, not getting. Mm. And this, the challenge of being a leader. Yeah. Right. It's like you're always the one giving, but you're not necessarily receiving. I think that there are different ways that we can go about it. One is making sure that when you're having these conversations with your team, uh, that it is a two way conversation. Because sometimes, you know, the feedback that you give, you may not receive it in the exact same language. Right. So you may be looking for something that is not necessarily going to happen. Maybe they're not going to say, hey, Reed, you you did a great job. That was a great meeting. Right. That may not be the way it sounds. But what you are listening for is clues. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not as direct. And I know that you'd really like that. You really want to know how you're doing because you're hungry to hear it. But it's really about actively listening for clues. Do they understand? Is this a two way conversation? Because if somebody is shut down, it's not a two way conversation. So the fact that they're engaging with you, that is a clue, Yeah. right? So you're listening for clues and maybe it's not as obvious as the feedback that you're given. Uh, And there are certainly ways that you can go about getting that, but it's not necessarily going to be sitting in a meeting and saying, hey, how did I do? Because you are still their boss. Yeah, you know, and so you really just have to listen for, for the nuance in conversations. Yeah. I think there's a lot here to tie together, Cindy, but at the beginning, it seemed like you were talking a lot about uh, self-agency and and personal Mm -hmm. leadership. And what I took from that is know who you are and know what you want, know what's important to you. Mm -hmm. And uh, in our case, many folks, or I'll say, yeah, in our case, but I'll just say generally in in Western society, many folks haven't done that work. And so they're just very reactive and they're just like existing. And so Mm -hmm. like, let's just say in this example, Reed goes into a meeting with them. They're just existing like, hey, I got my stuff done today, but they don't think in like as if they have a seat at the table to like give feedback back to Reed. So mm-hmm. w- if they've done that work, I think then maybe they'll have the self-confidence to say like, hey, you know, what's really important to me is this. So Reed, when you do mm-hmm. that thing, I don't receive it as well. Uh, so in absence of that, so one mm-hmm. would be, it's important for us to encourage our staff to go through these exercises, which may mm-hmm. disrupt some of them and they may realize that this is not what they want and they may flee. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. those that stick around decide, hey, this is what I want and I have a seat at the table and here's how I'm going to take, uh, as you're saying, like agency with that. And also mm-hmm. I'll speak back to Reed. In the meantime, there's a transition period because not every, we won't get 100% you know, compliance on this, right? Mm-hmm. Like it'll t- yep. everyone, you know, their journey goes at their own pace. So yeah. then Reed needs his own tooling in order mm-hmm. to get the feedback he craves. So mm-hmm. um, uh, Alex, our new head of product, I had a one-on-one with him last week and he is now in three different one-on-ones. He asked me the question, David, what is something you've wanted to say to me, but have uh, been reluctant to or have not mm. to me yet? And so he forces it. Like the first time he asked, I was like, shoot, I don't know what. And then the second time <laughs> I was a little bit more prepared, but he, yes. he just like, uh, he pulls it out of me. It's like, cause he's, mm-hmm. I think has done a lot of this work you're talking about. So he's secure mm-hmm. and asking for it. Um, yep. and so that's how he gets his uh, almost, I could see him doing the reverse. Cause I, you know, with his own reports. Yeah. I kind of love, is it Alex? Yeah. 
Hey, Alex, good job. Um, but that's something too that we could learn, right? Is like, why can't we say at the end of every conversation and have that just be part of the way these conversations go so that no one feels targeted necessarily. It's like at the end of every conversation, this is what we're going to say. Mm-hmm. You know, what is something that I love that question, right? What is something that you've maybe been hesitant to say to me? Because I think so much of it and that the reinforcement piece is important because to your point, right? You're like the first time I didn't really know what to say. And then the second time I was more prepared. Mm -hmm. That's why reinforcement matters, right? We're asking these questions, but we're also doing it consistently so that folks are more prepared for it. So if they haven't been doing, and even if they've been doing a lot of self-inquiry, doesn't necessarily mean that you have the confidence to ask, you know, to take a seat at the table in every room. As leaders, that's part of our jobs to help folks to build that confidence in them. But I love the idea of ending every one of those conversations with that question, just as a general strategy within the company. Because then mm-hmm. we're asking, we're used to this two-way conversation around feedback. Mm-hmm. And making it feel safe, right? Yes. Like if you do it at yes. the end, maybe you don't have time to get into it. Be like, man, I appreciate that feedback. You know, I'll I'll think on this and uh, bring it back up next time or something. Because then Great. it doesn't feel like, oh, shoot, that, you know, particularly if you're getting cut off at the end of at the end of your time, right? That you're rushing yeah. it to get a solve. It's just more of like, oh, you've been heard. And let me reflect yep. on that. And, mm-hmm. then and we're normalizing. Better. Mm-hmm. It's safe and it's being normalized that this is a two-way conversation, right? Like we know this is going to happen. It's, it's so, it, you know, I know that I'm expected to have answers as well and to have thoughts as well. So I, I love that exact statement at the end, by the way, when I say the end, I don't mean when somebody's like picking up their notepad and getting mm-hmm. ready to walk out, you know, part of it is also being able to say, okay, we've got 10 minutes left and then maybe ask that question. Yeah. Well, I, I like that you brought up early on about tools and exercises and h- how later you said it, not everything works for everybody, right? So you got to you gotta yeah. figure out what your bag of tools, you know, what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you were to more generalize uh, and, and say, this is where someone should start this journey, you know, how would you tell them sort of like the first three steps to the journey? Like what should they focus mm-hmm. on? Mm-hmm. The first thing I might say, or the first question I might ask is, who are you? which is really, really hard, but it asks, it's a, by the way, there's no answer to this question. It's a question that we spend the rest of our I'm lives hearing, trying to answer. There's a wrong answer to this question. <laughs> there is a wrong answer. No, there, there is no answer to this. And it's one of the questions that really drove me to make, drove me to make as many changes as I have is trying to understand this, right? Like, wait a minute, if I am not my job, if I am not these titles, then who am I? Because again, it gets us to come back to who, like our own integrity. So simply asking ourselves, who are we and writing that down or typing it. Do people say typing anymore? What do we say when we're using a keyboard? What do we, how do you describe that? Voice dictating. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. But really like answering that and doing like sitting down 20 minutes. Who am I? writing everything that happened. Now you're going to keep asking yourself this until you get to some core information, right? If you take away father, wife, daughter, child, partner, whatever it is, you're going to get to some really core information and it's going to get, it's going to eventually get you to a place to set to you answering the question, what's important to me, which is the next question that I ask is what, what is important to you? What are your core values? And that's not something we're going to get into now, but honestly, anybody can Google it. And there is a list of them, hundreds of things for you to choose from. And sometimes having those sort of lists are really important just to give you the language, because if you don't have the language, you wouldn't necessarily know how to answer that question. So it's using the internet in that way. So who are you? What are your values? What is important to you? 
And the, the other point that I would suggest is spending more time alone, not in front of a device. Because the ability to allow yourself to think is something that is very, very limiting, like, or limited. We don't do it enough, but when we do, ideas and thoughts pop up for us. And we have to listen to them, but we don't often do that. There's always something to occupy our time. And so when we take, again, like for me, it's meditation, but for you, it may just be sitting for 10 minutes a day with no devices and just sitting and getting comfortable with your own thoughts and then starting to record what those thoughts are, which might not sound very fun, but I promise you it does get to some core work eventually, which is answering some of those first two questions. Yeah, it can be very telling. I actually uh, have a therapist uh, right now that I'm seeing and she suggested the same thing. And even though she's mm. not my therapist or ours, uh, we have a facilitator out in Boulder that's working with us on this uh, operating platform that we use for the company. And she gave me also that feedback of, mm. hey, self-reflection is important. Just give yourself some time to think, Reed. And yeah. uh, the team, you know, all, I, I guess, laughs a little bit because I can't seem to turn it off. I, mm. I have the, the label of visionary at the company, but just always, mm -hmm. I feel like I'm always thinking. And so when I got that feedback from, from Margaret and Boulder and then my therapist, I was like, I don't know what to do because I'm always thinking. Mm -hmm. And she was mm -hmm. like, you're overthinking it, you know. Um, and she said, just sit down uh, out on your patio and and just be, you know. Mm -hmm. And what came to me, though, was like all this stress. And so mm -hmm. um but I, I'm going to say that's okay on some level. It just tells me back to who we are and, and what's important to us and where, where we're trying to get, you know, yeah. that um, when I sat down and just tried to like think, mm -hmm. I just got hit with a wave of stress. It's mm -hmm. like, well, that's, that's something I, I really need to, uh, when I say lean into not meaning more stress, but really examine right. and see how yeah. I can improve that equation instead mm -hmm. of like, Hey, just think on one topic, you know, like, and that might be suggestion for somebody else. But mm -hmm. when I just try to like decompress and just, it's so difficult for me. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, I'm working on that, but that by itself was in a way a win. It's like just yeah. to, to recognize that, that, um, for 10 minutes for me, you know, that, that was the outcome. Mm. And thank you for saying that. And thank you for sharing that. Are you familiar with the five, four, three, two, one technique? I'm not. It's an anxiety. It's used for anxiety. I also talk about it in micro joys, but it's this idea. It's basically a way to get ourselves still and present in any moment, because when, when our brain, my brain also goes a million miles a minute, it's very hard to turn it off. So I don't try to turn it off anymore. So when I see it, when I say I sit and meditate, it's not because it's quiet. I, I literally have mala beads that are in my office because I have to have something to touch in order to keep my brain focused. But the five, four, three, two, one technique is five things you can see, four things you can touch. You know what? I'm just going to make sure I'm giving this to you right. Look around, five things you can see, four things you can touch, three things you can hear, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. Now, I know I went through that quickly, but the beauty of that technique is that it grounds you in this moment because you're being forced to pay attention and it, it really sort of brings you back to the present moment. So when your mind is going a million miles a minute, like yours, or mine seems to do relentlessly, this gives you a moment to just kind of come back here. And when we are back at that neutral space, it allows us to really have a certain calmness and a certain presence to think about things differently. But perhaps also letting go of this idea that you have to not think just because you're sitting. Totally. I love it.
Do you have any other um, non-negotiables for you outside of meditation that you have found are a part of your daily life and practice? Yes, saying no a lot. Truly. Love that. Um, uh, Saying yes is something that we're programmed to do. And I say no to more things that I say yes to anymore. You know, when I started out earlier, I said I didn't know what I was doing with my life. So I said yes to everything. You know, yes, I'll teach this. And sometimes yes is where we need to be. But there are also moments in our lives where we get to a place where we have to own saying no. No to sometimes really great opportunities because just because they're great doesn't mean they're great for me. So I think saying no is a really important one. That is a non-negotiable. But so is saying yes, but it has to be a very deep yes when I do say it, whether it's about work that I take on, work that I'm going to write, you know, people that I'm going to have dinner with. Every, if it's a yes, it's a very big yes for me. That's great. It seems like that is probably, tell me if I'm wrong here, Cindy, but because of where you're at with your journey. Like you are very clear about what's important to you. It's not that different from Reed and I read Essentialism uh, mm. in the last year. And yeah. the the theme for me there is you have to know exactly what you want, what you're going for versus mm-hmm. like Nicole and I have a, a 10 month old. And when mm-hmm. he starts playing sports, he won't know that he wants to be a, I don't know, baseball or something, right? Mm-hmm. So he may need to sample everything to then sure. determine, okay, yep, no, I want to focus on baseball now. So yeah. is that fair? Like for you personally, that's why you get to say no a lot now is because you're very clear on that direction? Yes, yes and no. Okay. Yes and no. Meaning I get to say no a lot right now because I've just come out of a really difficult place. So no is the only way I get to ground myself. But me saying no to me is more of uh, an evolution, right? It's I'm not always going to be here. I'm not always going to say no. Ask me in six months, I might be in a place of saying yes more often. So I think what it comes from is a place of um, knowing what I need in this moment. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we've got to sample everything first. Yeah, I like, I think, Nicole, maybe you're the first one to say this to me, but um, I've been hearing it more and more, but it's almost like what season are you in right now? Yes. And so that starts to make it more clear to me back to it's a journey, right? Like, so the season right now is maybe... You wouldn't want to brand it the season of no, Cindy, but uh, it's I'm not fine with branding it that. <laughs> You're okay with branding it that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the season of no. No, truly. Yeah. It is, and that's okay. Well, you've already given the audience amazing advice and tips, but specifically, mm-hmm. what advice do you have for you know female leaders looking to either enter the C-suite, executive levels? Um, you know, there's not a lot of female leaders at the top right now. And so what advice do you have yeah. for them? First thing is make clear that that's what you want, right? Because so often we're waiting for things to get handed to us as women. We're waiting for somebody to tell us that we're ready, to tell us that we're enough, to tell us that we've learned all the things. So the very first piece of it is let it be known that that is what you are working towards. And I know that that sounds simple, but it is, believe it or not, it's very rare that anybody does that. That's great. Or yeah, or they think that maybe they want that. Like to your point, doing the mm-hmm. inner work to be like, this is actually what I want. And now I can be vocal and say that. I, I love that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then um, if you could give advice to your teenage self or your little yeah. girl, what would you say? Be more myself. I wish that I knew when I was a teenager that being myself was ultimately what was going to allow me to be the most successful and the most authentic. 
you know, as a teenager, we're just trying to be everyone else around us. We're trying to, we're these chameleons that take on every, you know, everyone else around us and our surroundings. And I think we move into adulthood learning that same thing. And the only way that I was able to shed that was to do the complete opposite, which is where I am today. And I wish I knew then that I would be okay being myself. I think what makes that so difficult, if I can, because I have three girls, twin Mm 13-year-olds and a 10-year-old girl, and we're constantly trying to enforce that message of be be yourself, um, you know, try to, uh, you know, stand up for what you feel is right, etc. And what I'm coming to the realization of is the further they get, the more it's about their peers. Um, in supporting that because mom and dad can say that, you know, and I won't give a a recent specific example, um, out of, out of the privacy of my, my daughter, she probably, every now and then she doesn't want you to tell, Yeah, believe it or not, every now and then she does listen and she'd be like, dad, you should have covered that off with me. Um, but, uh, yeah, she, she was like, well, you're, you're not at school. You're not the one that's going to have to deal with this. And so it's way easier and you're an adult, you, you've matured, you found yourself, you know, you can say all this stuff to me. And then I did try to empathize as much as I can reflect back on what it was like Mm -hmm. to be a 13 year old boy, you know, middle school, much less a girl and how hard it was to, to stand up for myself and, and find myself and, and whatnot. And I went, then I take it a step further. I'm like, man, so much of that was just the people that I was friends with. They were constantly putting that pressure on me. And so what, uh, I think where they found the most progress is, is, uh, is through their friends when they found the right friends, Mm -hmm. um, that really support that within them. So I just say that, I guess, to parents, like, it's so critical that you, you know, your kids are surrounded by the right people and it doesn't change as you get older. You know, if you're at the wrong company or you have the wrong people that you're hanging out with, uh, Mm -hmm. it it always is a big influencer in, in how well you can, uh, can toe that line, I guess. That's right. And I think, you know, again, what would I tell my teenage self? My teenage self would need to know that, but my teenage self would not listen. If that makes sense, you know, like (laughs) so many of these lessons and learnings, it's like, well, sure. In hindsight, 30 years later, I can give you this advice, but I wouldn't listen. But what I can say is that I had a mother who consistently told me that I can be weird and I could be myself. And so when the dust settled and I was well into my 20s, I realized that I could because I still had that in the back of my mind. Even if there was that 10 year period of time where I was like, you don't understand you know, it, it stuck. It did stuck, stick rather, but I couldn't hear it then. And chances are, Reed, your kiddo can't hear it now. That doesn't mean they're not listening. Yeah, no doubt. I think it's also uh, you try to celebrate when you see those those moments happen, even if they don't happen much, because the older you get, then maybe, you know, you start to to lean into that more and, it, and more regularly you're saying no or you're, um, you know, I guess, upholding those core values, you know, on a mm-hmm. daily basis. But when they're kids, you know, it, it just, it isn't going to happen as much. And so you need to be there, you know, and, and celebrate that win when it does. And that will hopefully help That's reinforce right. the, you know, the behavior. Well, That's Nicole, right. you are founder and C-suite. So I want to reverse the question. What would you tell your teenage <laughs> self? Um, my teenage self, I think for me right now, what I'm, you know, what's present for me is trying to kind of work rework the paradigm of like hustle culture Mm. um especially coming out of this season of the startup that we're in of like just hustle 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 like work 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 that was definitely a value that was instilled in me from very early on and so while i do grant that as 
partially credited for my success. I would also tell myself that it is okay to be silly, to have fun. Like, you know, I, I very much have a serious demeanor. Um, and so now I'm trying to be like, okay, how can you have more fun? How can you be more silly? And that is okay. And that that's safe. Mm. Oh, I love that. And do you know, by the way, how you could have more fun? Um, for me, I've d done little things like I now listen to music in the mornings or like yes. we had a dance party, like at dinner the other day, just little stuff. And so I'm starting yeah. small. Um, but yeah. I think that will over time lead to, to bigger moments. Yes. I love, love, love that. Right. This anti-hustle and sort of really being able for you to lean into that now and to say, wow, you know, I've come, I've come far enough. I can have fun now. I mean, yeah. PS, you could have had fun yeah. before. <laughs> and, I, and I think for so many of us as adults, right, like that gets pushed to the wayside. The idea totally. of having any fun or joy for that matter. Um, it's like, well, wait, what does that even look like? Which is why I asked you that question. Do you even know what that looks yeah. like? Because sometimes we have to sit down and assess that. It's like, Shh, what is fun? I don't know what's fun anymore. Like really, because we've just come so far from it. I happen to have a lot of fun all the time, but I, I understand. <laughs> Kidding. No, that cool. was great. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Well, Cindy, as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to cover or get out to the audience? Um, yeah, before we wrap. No, is there anything you'd like me to cover or get out to the audience before we wrap? Well, I was going to put it more directly. Maybe uh, we we uh, the summit that we're we'll be having starting uh, in a couple of days is about rethinking and unlearning, and so you've already hit a lot of those uh, yeah. elements. But anything else that stands out related to leadership that you think is yeah. really important at this at this stage for for us to be rethinking or unlearning. Yeah, I think something that we want to rethink is conformity, being like everybody else around us, right? We're going to talk about this at the summit, but this idea that, you know, the leaders we remember, the leaders that impact us the most are the ones that were not like everyone else. And so we really want to rethink that and instill that in our people. The idea that they do not have to conform. We want them to be themselves authentically. And that's such an overplayed word, but it really does make a difference because those are the leaders we all want to learn from. Well, I guess last one for me then um, is who has impacted you the most? I mean, you've already had a huge impact on me in this short conversation and I'm super excited to meet you in person, but who, who has been that influential impact for you? Uh, you know, I had a, a boss when I was in my early 20s, who believed in me, who allowed me to make a lot of mistakes. And she was like no one else. She was the softest, kindest, most, um, she was just a very kind leader in in a team of sharks for, <laughs> for no better way to put it. And truly, like, you know, I think people would around her not understand how she showed up like that day to day. And 20 years later, first of all, we're still friends. She is a, a mentor to me still. Her way of leading and doing it differently than everyone else has had such an impact on me because whenever I question why I'm not doing things like other people do, I remember her name is Kelly. I even talk about her in my last book. Um, but her ability to be this person that was very different than everyone else around her has taught me that I could be that too and that that's okay. And then I'll still create impact like she did. Amazing. Well, we'll cut out the clip where you congratulated Alex. And now you can cut this out and I'll say, good job, Kelly. Uh, you can give that to Kelly. <laughs> Kelly knows. <laughs> Kelly knows. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. All right, Cindy. Well, if people want to learn more about you or what you do, what's the best way? 
Uh, they can come to my website at cindyspiegel.com, Instagram at Cindy Spiegel. They can buy any of my books. I say any, like there's 16. There's two. I want buy both of those. <laughs> two, two more than the rest of us. <laughs> two more. There will be many, many more. But for now, there's two as of 2023. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, we'll put those in the show notes so that people can easily link out. But thank you, Cindy. This was a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And I look forward to seeing you all tomorrow. For sure. It's going to be great. Thank you. Thank you.